All right. Well, we had a week off last week as we had our men's breakfast, and I uh, trust you ladies had a good time together. And uh, when we finished up a couple weeks ago, we were just finishing up chapter 40 of Genesis, which was the uh, the part that we were looking at was the the end there where he interprets uh, the second dream of the two officials where he interprets the dream of the baker. Joseph interprets the dream of the baker uh, and then uh, the outcome of his uh, interpretations and uh, and then finally the results of the cupbearer being restored to his position and uh, his careful diligence to make sure that he returned his favor to Joseph by remembering to mention him to Pharaoh, which, of course, he did not do. Uh, so today we want to begin chapter 41 and look at the first 14 verses or so, Lord willing. And uh, and this is kind of the this is the kind of the watershed here. This is where things really turn. Uh, events begin to really turn in Joseph's life. Finally, after all these years, and I'm referring to Joseph's life, not our study in Genesis. <laughs> but uh, so, before we look at chapter 41, though, and before we read it, go back and look at the uh, the last part of uh, chapter 40. Uh, we looked at verses, uh, last time we were together, we looked at verses 16 through 23, but uh, look at that and see, what do you remember that we talked about a couple weeks ago? Now you're going to have to work hard to remember back two weeks, but what are some of the things we talked about in that story of the interpretation of the big... Uh, one of the things was that Joseph was trusting God, and God was prospering him, but he still was trying to do everything in his power okay. to remedy the situation. It wasn't like he was sitting back and saying, okay, God, deliver me. Okay. He was still doing the things to remember him. Yeah. Don't forget yeah. the innocent. Yeah. He wasn't like he was just trusting the Lord to come, but he was still doing his Yeah. Yeah. So, trusting God and mean that we just go totally passive, that we just that we don't do anything. Joseph obviously uh, is is doing what he can do. And uh, and in the end result, it appears not to be effective. But he still he still asks the the uh, the uh, cupbearer to remember him and he pleads his case. He pleads his innocence uh, to him. So uh, so trusting God doesn't mean that we just go totally passive and we just wait for God to just kind of miraculously fix all our problems. So, what else? It ultimately fits his credibility. Joseph's interpretations were just as he interpreted. Okay. Okay. Came out exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he nailed it right on. Okay. And we compared uh, we compared the two dreams: the dream of the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, and the chief uh, the dream of the chief baker. And we noticed that there are some similarities. We'll talk more about this today uh, because this incident will come up again in today's story. 
but there are some striking similarities in their dreams, but there are also some striking differences in their dreams. And we and we looked at that. And one of the things that's significant about Joseph's interpretation is that God, in giving him the interpretation, gives him the wisdom to recognize that what's important in comparing these two dreams is not their similarities, but their differences. Okay, that it's and, and so he's able to distinguish in these two dreams two entirely different outcomes. Okay, and that'll become important as we look at today's lesson. So I just wanted to point that out. What else? Yeah. Well, it seems like it because you'll notice it says when the chief when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph. So it's like he was, you know, he he was not going to ask for an interpretation unless he was fairly confident he was going to get a favorable one. Right? What, what do we learn from that? Well, something else that is different than what you're asking. Well, would you begin to ask my, the questions I answer the questions I asked Jim? <laughs> you have to ask the right questions. Oh, okay. Then I can say yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, I was actually thinking about this this morning. Uh, the guy, those two guys, were sad because there was no one to interpret their dream. And I was thinking their culture that must be a really big deal to them. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. have dreams. It, you know, in our culture. You know, you, we have, I have weird dreams and don't think too much about it. He said, well, that was a weird dream. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, others maybe do other things with their dreams, but it, it's not the same in their culture. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. they've got to have somebody tell them, what does this mean? Yeah. Maybe they think it's a, a sign from God or what. I don't exactly. Know. And, and, and that will become, that, that factor, that cultural factor will become important in today's lesson as well. Yeah. And so Joseph, when he heard it, that these guys or some of those guys were sad. He he knew where the answer was. Mm-hmm. God. And then it was interesting to me, he said, Please tell me the dream. Yeah. So he, there was no hesitation. He believed that God was going to provide or and he did by yeah. faith. Yeah. And, uh, but to answer your question what was my question? <laughs> We've all forgotten the question now. Well, one thing, the detail of the dreams, too, the third day mm-hmm. is pretty detailed. Also, a lot of people that are forecasters today, well, you know, this year there's going to be a great disaster. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, almost anything that happens is so vague, you know, God's stuff is always, there's no way to mistake it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very precise. And that's one of the things that strikes me about uh, as we go through Scripture, and so many times in the book of Genesis we've seen this very point, that that God is not unable to make himself clear to us. Uh, one of the One of the... Errors that I, that I believe you see in the emergent church movement is is this kind of postmodern idea that we really we really can't know for sure we can't really know God for sure because He's so far above us and He's so great that we can't really know anything we can't know for sure that what we know about Him is true 
Well, there are obviously many things about God we cannot know. That's pretty clear. But God is capable of making known to us very clearly the things that he wants us to know. And, and that's an important distinction to realize. And so, and so in this case of these dreams, he's done that. He's been very specific. He's able to communicate to these two officials for whatever reason. And it seems to us that the reason he does this for the officials is really because of what he's doing in Joseph's life and not particularly because it's important that these officials know what's going to happen. But, but, but God is able to communicate clearly and specifically like you said, Mike, just right down to the very days of when these things are going to happen. Okay. What else? Okay. The active participation of Pharaoh mm-hmm. was not in the baker's dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, you made a good comparison with Abraham's dream and sending the carcasses. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The baker did not. Yeah, he, he seems totally, uh, totally indifferent to what's happening here to the, to the food that's been designated for Pharaoh in his, in his dreams. He, he seems completely indifferent. What do we know about these two guys that was the same? Not their dreams, but them. They're actually not just a baker, but they're actually government. Okay. That's a true answer. That wasn't the one I was fishing for. But that is a true answer. What's that? Okay, they had both offended Pharaoh. Okay. And that's important for us to remember. They had both offended Pharaoh. But when it comes to Pharaoh's birthday and he's going to, you know, he's going to do his birthday thing, whatever it is, he restores one who has offended him and he judges the other and hangs him. Now, we have no idea, because Scripture doesn't tell us, on what basis, if any, Pharaoh made that choice or that decision. But as I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the story does serve for us in a sense of the of the of a metaphor of of final judgment of the of God's final reckoning with mankind that there are those, that we are all offenders we have all offended God and for some of us we will be we will be restored we will be uh, we will be lifted up out of our out of our dismal situation and we will be elevated again into his presence to serve him. And for others, there is this terrible shame and end that is waiting. One of the things that stands out about the baker's uh, final demise is that, is that it was a very shameful thing. The way he was put to death was, was a very shameful and disgraceful thing. And, 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 and so we, one of the things we talk about is how oftentimes the wicked mock the idea of God's judgment. And they laugh at the idea of hell, and and they make light of the idea the idea of hell. But in reality, when it finally comes, they're going to realize it's not a laughing matter at all. Not only because of the extent of the judgment, but because of the utter shame and disgrace that will be revealed about them in the day of judgment. So, it's a, in some ways, it's a very sobering metaphor that we have here in what happens to the to the uh, cupbearer into the baker. Anything else before we go on? 
Okay, well, let's pick it up then in chapter 41 and verse 1, and we'll read the first 14 verses. He says, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and the gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep uh, and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, Seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Well, so we, when, we start the, when we start this part of the narrative here, we start here in chapter 41. The first thing we discover is what? It's been two full years, okay? So, so we got another two years of Joseph cooling his heels in Potiphar's prison, okay? And, uh, and we will discover as we go on in the story that, it, that, that he is now 30 years of age, okay? So he was, he was about 28 years of age when he interprets the dreams for the officials and he is now 30 years of age. And we've already talked some about this idea of God's timing and why it was necessary for him to wait another couple of years and all that sort of thing. And God, uh, in, in his providence and in his sovereignty, directs and, and, and moves uh, so as to accomplish his purposes in his time. And we've already talked about that. But one of the things I'd like to think about is the last 13 years. Because Joseph was 17 years of age when he was uh, sold by his brothers uh, into slavery. And, and now we're really at the turning point in Joseph's life. This is the point at which Joseph is now elevated 
to the throne, so to speak, in Egypt. He's elevated to be prime minister of all of Egypt. Okay, second in command, and we'll get to that story next week. But, <clears throat> but um, this is really the turning point. He's lifted out of the dungeon and he's taken into Pharaoh's court. But one of the things I was asking myself and meditating on this week are what are the things that Pharaoh, excuse me, that Joseph has learned in the last 13 years? Okay, he can't do it by himself, okay? Go ahead. Well, the overarching answer. I think you're looking for specifics. The overarching answer is he learned all the things necessary for him to be elevated. Okay, and what are some of those things? <laughs> I am looking for specifics. Okay. Well, I did. I said it that way because I didn't want to lose the point because probably each of us are waiting or thinking something should happen at some point, and we haven't learned that thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think, well, okay, what can I do to learn that thing so that I can go to this next okay. level or okay. whatever? Okay. Uh, and I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> well, I think to wait <laughs> is a good thing to do. Okay. But, but let's think about the specifics for a moment because I think it can be encouraging to us. <laughs> what? Thankful and working continually and doing the best because where God's placed him. Okay. He's in charge of where God's placed him. Okay, so one of the things he learned is he learned the, the quality of character that he needed to be the kind of person ultimately that God wanted him to be. But what are some of the specific things that he learned that ultimately were useful to him? For example, he is... He is grabbed by his brothers, thrown in the pit, lifted up, sold into slavery. He goes down to, goes down to Egypt and he is sold into Potiphar's house. What does he do once he's in Potiphar's house? He gets betrayed again. Well, you're, now you're jumping ahead now. <laughs> okay, okay. He manages this entire estate and it's apparently fairly significant. He handles everything in the household and everything in the field. He manages everything. Now, Actually, this really hadn't dawned on me until I think just this week. But one of the things that's associated with Potiphar's house is what? We discussed the prison. Okay, so it may have been that he was even overseeing the prison that he ultimately ends up in. Okay, but he's overseeing every this entire estate, so he's learning how to manage this estate. Okay, which. You know, that's a pretty significant accomplishment to learn, you know, when you're 17, 18, 19 years of age to learn how to handle uh, an estate like that. So he's he's learning to manage an estate. OK, what else is he learning? Wherever he goes, God blesses the people around him and they recognize that his God is blessing everything that he does. OK, you guys keep wanting to go spiritual on me. I'm looking for practical stuff. I'm, that's true. That's true, David. But I, be careful. <laughs> OK, okay. Where, where is he? Where is he? He's in Egypt. What is he? He had to learn 
Okay, he has to learn what it's like to be a foreigner in a foreign land. He has, he comes to understand what it means to be an alien, to be a stranger, to be one who's out of place. Okay, so he learns that. So he's learned how to manage an estate. He's learned how to function within a foreign culture and how to relate and how to learn the language and all that sort of thing. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And he could have just said that quietly, wait till somebody comes along. He obviously was proactive. Yes. You don't get into those leadership positions without showing you have that capability. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's right. That's right. Okay. And we've talked about that. We've talked about how, in our circumstance, if we were in his circumstance, a lot of us probably just go over in a corner and sulk. But he doesn't do that. Okay. But. But, okay, now think about this. Joseph, where did Joseph come from? Besides back in Canaan. But what kind of a context did he come from? And from that kind of background where they, they never really had their work. They were constantly... Okay, so they were nomads. Uh, what, what kind of work did they do? They were shepherds. They were agriculture. Okay, so, okay... Now, when he finds himself in Potiphar's house, with what kind of people is he associating? Okay, he's associating with, a, with the upper crust of society, okay? With the royalty and the influential people of the court. Those are the people he's associating with. So, in addition to all these character qualities that you all keep insisting that we talk about, he's learning now, to, he's learning now how, to, uh, how to administer a... Uh, uh, an estate. He's learned how to live as a foreigner in a foreign land, but he's also learned something he would never have learned in Jacob's house is, is how do you behave yourself around the upper crust of society? Okay. Pharaoh's chief bodyguard? No, no, no. Oh, well, I, there's hardly an upper crust in that society. I mean, they were the leaders. Well, they they were influential within their culture, yeah. But when you think about the contrast between that between that that Aramaic uh, ag- uh, agrarian type of culture and the and and the culture of of Egypt with this high emphasis on education and wealth and all those sorts of things. People they were dealing with. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the people in the, that agrarian culture, they were actually doing the work. Yeah. And all the folks in Egypt that he was doing the work were not doing the physical work. Yeah, yeah. They were the rulers and the, the influential and the elite and that sort of thing. It's in, although there was a sense in which uh, Abraham and, and Jacob and, uh, and, and Isaac were very influential within their, within their culture, it's, it's an entirely different frame of mind than you get when you get into kind of this political world of the upper crust of Egypt, okay? So he's learned to deal with the other people, too. When he first got there, he wasn't in charge of anybody. Okay. Lowest guy on the... Yeah. Okay. Probably had to relate to the very lowest slaves, and then after he... Even after he was promoted, he still had to relate to probably take care of the upper crust, but he also had to be in charge of the lowest. Yes. He learned to relate to both types of people. And, And he learned that even more than when he ends up in prison, right? 
Because when he's in prison, now he's relating to the scum of society. He's having to learn how to relate to the scum and the low and the cast out and the depressed and the downcast and all those sorts of people. But not only is he having to learn how to relate with them, he's also learning has to learn how to lead them. Right? So now he has to learn how... How, you know, because now he's a servant in prison and he's in charge of the prison, he not only has to learn how to relate to all the low people, so he's learned how to le- relate to the high and the elite, he's learned how to relate to the low, he's learned how to administer this wealthy estate, but now he also has to learn how to administer and lead a group of renegades and prisoners and the scum of the earth and the downcast and, and all those sorts of people. Okay. These are all things that Joseph has gone through in the last 13 years in preparation for where he's ultimately going to end up. Isn't that cool? And and so, you know, Joseph has no clue what's happening. He doesn't see this whole grand scheme that we can see looking back on it from our perspective. He doesn't see all that. But the remarkable thing is is that, that he just remains in this in this disposition of God's in control of my life and God is present with me and God's working through me and I'm just going to be faithful where I am. And as he does that, he's learning all these things. But now if you want to focus on the spiritual, we'll focus on the spiritual. What is the most important thing that Joseph has learned in these last 13 years? What is the one thing you have to learn before honor? Well, yeah, okay. Pardon? Humility. Humility. Before honor comes humility, Proverbs says. And so the, the one critical thing, the most critical thing that Joseph has had to learn is humility. Now, now some of us think he had to learn it more than some of the rest of us think he had to learn it because when we were back talking about whether or not he should have told his dreams, we weren't all in agreement on that. But one of the things that I felt, I, I thought about his, his dreams that he was being a little boastful about that. He was kind of, you know, he's kind of the youngest son type of thing or almost the youngest son and he got this, these dreams that he was going to be a top dog in the family eventually and, and it was just, uh, you know, a little bit too much. And not everybody agreed with my assessment on that, and that's fine. But, but it is clear that one of the things that God is doing in the life of Joseph as he is now, he has been for the last 13 years, building into him the humility that he would need before God could honor him. And so he goes through this process of learning humility, and I think he really does learn it. And I think... I think, interestingly enough, the place where it's demonstrated how well he learned that humility is in that statement that he makes to his brothers when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the reason I say that is because when Joseph says that to his brothers, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You did this, but God did this so that through, through my life, I might be able to save many. And what's striking to me about Joseph's answer to his brothers there is he doesn't say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because he was going to give me a really cushy life and he was going to make me rich and give me a great hot wife and two cute kids and, and, and he was going to lift me up and he was going to make me top dog. That's not what he says. Because Joseph recognizes that this whole process 
and even the evil actions of his brothers that they intended for evil, but God intended for good, were not so that Joseph would end up rich and powerful and honored and all those things, which are all the things that ultimately happened. But it wasn't in order. It, that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was that so Joseph in that position could serve as a redeemer in the life of his family, in the life of the Egyptians, in Potiphar's life, in Potiphar's wife's life, and in the life of all the countries around Egypt. So, so there's been this tremendous process over this period of learning all these practical things we've talked about that ultimately he will use when he ascends uh, to his high position. But the most important thing he learns is he learns humility. Now, I don't know how humble he was before he started, but I've got a hunch that he was a lot more humble by the time he got to the end of this 13-year period. Well, so, one of the things that's striking about this story is the way the narrator communicates it to us. Okay? I want you to notice this. He repeatedly tells, the narrator repeatedly tells us as the readers to look. Look at this. Okay? Notice. Verse 1. He says, Behold, he was standing by the Nile. Verse 2. And lo, actually it's the same word. Behold, from the Nile there came up cows. Verse 3. Then behold, seven other cows came up. Then verse 5. He says, And behold, seven ears of grain came up. Verse 6. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted. Verse 7. or, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, verse 7 says, And behold, it was a dream. And then, uh, uh, well, that's it. There's six of them ending there in verse 7. Okay. What is striking here is, is how the narrator just keeps saying, Look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Okay. And I think he's doing two things there. One, is he's trying to get us as the readers to put ourselves in the in the picture. He's trying to get us he's trying to get us to really kind of focus here and really look at what's happening. So he doesn't want us to just kind of read it abstractly and kind of sit back and go, oh, isn't that an interesting story? But he's trying to really get us focused on what's happening. He wants us to kind of, if you will, experience it. Okay? I think the second thing that he's doing is he's trying to, by doing that with us, he's trying to communicate to us how vivid this dream is to Pharaoh. Okay, This dream is just, to Pharaoh, it is a very vivid, gripping dream. And you all, you all have had experiences. You've had dreams that, you know... You know, they're just dreams and you kind of wake up in the morning and you go, what was that? You know, and there's some vague thing you kind of halfway remember. Those of you who remember dreams, some of us don't remember them at all. But for those of us who do, sometimes that's it. But then sometimes they're dreams, you know, uh, they just kind of wake you up in the middle of the night. You sit up in bed, you know, and go, Woo, wow, that was quite a dream. <laughs> you know, it's very vivid. Sometimes you don't even realize that it's a dream because it is so real and you just wake up and you and you may go, 
oh shoot, it was just a dream, you know, or you wake up and go, oh boy, I'm glad that was just a dream, yeah. Okay. Well, the idea here is that, is that this is a very vivid dream to Pharaoh. Now we don't know for sure, but let's just presume. Let's just kind of speculate for a minute. While Pharaoh is having his night of these vivid, ripping dreams, what's Joseph doing? He's just sleeping in prison. Yeah, I don't know what he's sleeping on. He's sleeping on the ground or on a mat or, or, or what. But he's just—he just—it's just an ordinary night for, just an ordinary night for Joseph. He's just a prisoner in prison, sleeping away in prison. But over here in the palace is Pharaoh, and he's having these very vivid dreams. Or actually, I should say, he's having this very vivid dream singular because actually one of the things that's interesting about this whole story is that the narrator and Pharaoh and Joseph all refer to it as a single dream okay now you may not pick that up about the narrator because in our translations Often, uh, several times it says it uses the word dreams, but you'll notice there's if you have like a New American, there's a footnote there. If you go over in the margin, you'll say you'll notice it says literally dreams singular. Okay. So what's interesting is that Pharaoh has had a dream. Pharaoh calls it a dream, as we'll see next week. Joseph specifically says to Pharaoh, "You have had one dream." Okay, and he and he says it specifically that way. Uh, and, and the narrator indicates to us that it is one dream. But it's one dream that comes in two parts. Okay? He, has, he has part A uh, first, and then he wakes up, and then he has part B. Okay? Uh, goes back to sleep, and he has part B. Now, so he, so he has part A of this dream. And in this dream, he's, he's standing by the Nile. And he sees these fat, sleek, good-looking, you know, cows come up out of the Nile. And they stand there on the banks of the Nile and they eat the marsh grasses. And they're just kind of there. And then behind them come up these really ugly, monstrosity-looking things. I mean, they are so, they are so emaciated and, and thin and scrawny and gaunt. It uses the word gaunt and calls them ugly, and they come up after them. Uh, later, when we see Pharaoh describe his dream, he, he refers to them as, as, the, as the ugliest cows he's ever seen. He said, I've never seen anything like this. Okay, they, they are, These are the worst things he's ever seen. And they come up out of the river behind the cows, and the other cows, and they stand by them there for a, some, apparently a period of time since they stood by them. And then it says they ate them. You know what? Well, I'm kind of glad Pharaoh had that dream and I didn't. <laughs> it gets pretty grotesque here at this point. You know, I don't know what this looked like, but <clears throat> but it's pretty gross. Okay, but what you have to remember that it is so vivid to Pharaoh that it's only afterwards he wakes up and he goes, "Oh man, that was a dream." Okay, so so it's very vivid to him. It's like it's real to him. So he wakes up and then he goes back to sleep. And I, I find that interesting because uh, 
uh, and just from my experience with dreams and probably your experience with dreams, you, you notice you, you may have several dreams in the course of a night and you wake up in the morning and you try and remember your dreams and sometimes, well, there was this kind of, and you, you can't put any substance to it. You kind of wish you could remember it, but it's just not there. But if you have a dream and you wake up right after that dream and it's been a very vivid or unusual dream, what happens? Okay, you can't go back to sleep, but you think about it, right? You lay there and you think about it. And you go, wow, that was weird. I, I, I had a weird dream last night. It's kind of funny because I woke up after I had it and I went, oh, this pertains to my Sunday school lesson. Because <laughs> I had this weird dream about teaching. So I every once in a while I dream about teaching this class. And, and so I, I, came into, uh, uh, I came into class and... Uh, I don't remember all the circumstances now, but I came into the class. You were the ugly gaunt cow that I had to teach. No, actually, actually, I recognized a number of you in the class, and plus we had a number of visitors, but I had come without my Bible. And so I had to borrow somebody else's Bible. So I borrowed Ginger's Bible, okay? And uh, so I had Ginger's Bible up here, and uh, although it was in a different room, I had Ginger's Bible, and I... And I couldn't remember what I was supposed to teach. So I knew it was chapter 41. So I, I said, okay, so let's go to 1 Peter chapter 41. You know, well, I got over to 1 Peter and I said, this doesn't work. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm trying to remember, what, is it, what am I supposed to teach? And I'm up here and I'm getting all embarrassed and everything. And so, you need uh, would you please interpret that? <laughs> I do need an interpretation. But I woke up after that dream. There was more to it than what I described. But I woke up afterwards and I thought, well, now that's a weird dream to have right before I teach about Joseph's dream, about Pharaoh's dreams. But so at any rate, uh, that was one of those dreams where when you wake up afterwards, you go, whew, I'm glad that was just a dream, you know. But... Uh, so, so at any rate, he has this dream. He wakes up, and it's like God has woken him up in order to imprint the dream on his mind so he doesn't forget it. Because he just wakes up, and then he falls back asleep. Okay? And we really don't know what he thought about the dream when he first woke up. The first, the first dream, or the part A, if you want to call it that. Uh, but he falls back asleep, and then he has this second dream, or the second part of his dream. And, and in this case, he sees seven heads of grain on one stalk. And they're plump and they're full and they're good heads of grain. And then right after that, these other uh, thin, parched by the east wind type heads of grain sprout up on this same stalk. And they swallow up the others. Okay, again... Weird imagery. I don't know how you see that in a dream, you know, and I'm glad it wasn't my dream. But he, but he, he sees these heads of grain swallow up the plump heads of grain. Okay. And when we get to Pharaoh's description of it, both of the cows and of the grain will see that when, they, when, the, cows, when the thin cows consumed the fat cows, you couldn't tell they consumed anything. Okay. So it's like they consumed them, but they still were these ugly, ugly gaunt cows. Okay. And the same with the heads of grain. So, so they consumed, and okay, and that's the end of the dream. And so Pharaoh wakes up. It says, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. Well, 
Now, this is the same morning, remember, this same morning that Joseph's over here getting up out of bed and starting his daily duties in the prison. He's still just a prisoner doing what he's been doing for however many years he's been there in prison. But over in the palace, Pharaoh's waking up and he's going, whoa. And he's troubled. Now, why is Pharaoh troubled? Okay, and why does that trouble him? I don't have interpreters for my dreams and it didn't bother me. Well, usually don't bother me. <laughs> One thing is going back to the point you mentioned earlier, Jim, which is what? It was important in that okay, in that culture, dreams like this, vivid, heavy, loaded with all these symbols and things we'll talk about in just a minute, these things are significant. And... And you want to know what they mean because someone is trying to say something to you. Probably one of the gods is trying to speak to you and communicate to you. And I have no clue what he's trying to say. And so he's troubled by this. Okay. Why else would he be troubled? I'm not sure why he'd be troubled, but you would think that's not the first time he's had a dream. Why doesn't he have someone to well, actually, he does. And we'll get to that in just a minute. He normally does have somebody to interpret. But before we get to that question, what else? Why else might he be troubled here? Incidentally, this is the same reaction the two officials had in prison, right? They had this dream and they woke up in the morning and they were sad because there was nobody to interpret and they were troubled by their dreams. Okay, but but I think it is, as Jim said, because dreams are important and, you know, it's somebody trying to communicate to us, God or somebody trying to communicate to us. And how are we going to know what they're saying if we if if we don't have somebody to interpret the dream to us? So that's one reason. But what's the other reason? I mean, if you had this dream, if you had these two dreams and you woke up in the morning and you thought they had some meaning or significance to them. And it was these two dreams or dream, if you will. How would you feel? This is not a happy dream. OK, I don't know the interpretation of this dream, but but this dream has evil portent to it. Right. You have all this fat, good looking stuff being eaten up by scrawny, ugly, you know, and it doesn't do it any good, you know, and and so so in Pharaoh's mind, these dreams do not bode well, and I need to understand what they mean. And so, what does he do? Okay, he calls the magicians and the and the wise men of Egypt. Okay, now we need to know a little bit about these guys. Okay, these he calls them here magicians, but, you know, these are not, you know, these are not magicians like we know of today. You know, we typically today we call them illusionists. Okay, these magicians, we will encounter them again in Scripture. We'll encounter them a few hundred years later when Moses comes back to Egypt and and he has a uh, he has a confrontation with this same bunch of people. Okay, not the same individuals, but the same class of people, these magicians. Okay. But they're not simply magicians. They're actually the priests of the Egyptian religions. Okay. 
So they are these kind of priestly magicians, and they so they're they're really the representatives of the religion. Okay, so when Pharaoh calls for them, he's really calling for the people who can tell him what the gods are saying to him. Okay, but they are magicians in that they have they have developed they have developed and practiced the magical arts. And you know it's easy for us to dismiss that and say, well, they were. Illusions. They, they were just really good at you know sleight of hand and that sort of thing. And I have no doubt that that was some of it. But it's clear when we read the story of Moses that there was, they were also able to do supernatural things. Okay, that's clear. They just couldn't do all that Moses could do. Okay, but they were able to do supernatural things. So so let's not regard these guys lightly. These guys are guys dealing in the occult. Okay, they don't know they're dealing in the occult. They think they're dealing in these great religions of their gods, but they're dealing with demonic powers. Okay, So these are pretty significant people. The second thing is, these guys aren't just kind of self-appointed magicians. Okay? They, are, uh, they are thoroughly trained in their arts, which involves not only the magical arts, but involves uh, the deciphering of hieroglyphics, and the interpretations of dreams, and they had they had to go through this thorough training. And there was actually a there was actually an academy that they would go to called the House of Life, and they would go to this academy and they would be trained in the magical arts and trained in the deciphering of hieroglyphics and trained in the interpretation of dreams. And in this House of Life, they actually had something called dream books, and these dream books were the books you used to decode dreams, to interpret dreams. So they they, in the dream books, there were all these various symbols and things that people would see in their dreams, and it would tell you what those symbols meant. And, uh, and there would be references to puns if there was you know, certain words in your dream or something, and, and, and they would understand through their dream books, they could understand how this word might be a pun on some other concept. So they had an elaborate method of the interpretation of dreams that they were accustomed to using. And they had been apparently sufficiently successful over many, many, you know, hundreds of years in the development, the cultivation of this science, if you will, of the interpretation of dreams that they had people pretty well convinced they could interpret dreams. And so when we encounter these individuals in various places in Scripture who are supposedly skilled like we do here and then much, much, much later in the book of Daniel, don't fall into the mistake that these are just some kind of charlatans that are just out there pretending like they can interpret dreams. These guys are skilled, trained interpreters of dreams. Which makes their inability to interpret Pharaoh's dream particularly significant. Because in, in Pharaoh's dream, we see some pretty profound, conspicuous symbolic, uh, symbolism. All right? What's the first obvious greatest symbol in the dream of Pharaoh? The Nile River. The Nile River. Okay. I mean, this one jumps out at you. Okay. Uh, the Nile River is virtually a god to the Egyptians. Okay. So if somebody's dreaming about the Nile River, you know, that's, that's big red flag number one. And uh, uh, a, a number of years later, actually probably about the time of Moses, there was a guy, an Egyptian by the name of Iuna, and he actually wrote a hymn to the Nile River. 
And he says in his hymn to the Nile River, he says things like this. Overflowing the gardens of Ra, Ra being uh, one of the Egyptian gods, giving life to all animals, watering the land without ceasing, lover of food, bestower of corn, bringer of food, great Lord of provisions, creator of all good things. Okay, This is how they view the Nile River. And to some degree, justifiably so, because the Nile River is, is the source of everything that's Egypt. It's the source of Egypt's wealth. It's the source of Egypt's uh, agricultural prowess. Uh, it's the source of their life and their sustenance and, and the ebb and the flow as every, every year at a certain time of year, the, the river would flow wider and it overflow its banks and it would water the marshlands and, and deposit this rich uh, uh, silt uh, across the land of Egypt. Uh, or a broad swath along the either side of the river, and then it would recede, and then they would plant their crops in this in this lush silt and grow their crops, and it would go through this cycle every year. And so it was really the sustainer of life, but it was also the Nile River that could that could wreak havoc in Egypt if it really flooded, you know, in a drastic sense. It destroyed everything because everything was along the Nile River, and it could just destroy, do an untold amount of destruction. Or if it was a dry year, a drought year and it receded and they didn't have the annual normal flooding that they used to sustain life, they would starve to death. Okay, So the Nile River was the center of their life. And so when Pharaoh has a dream about the Nile River, this is, this is symbol number one. This is the sustenance of life. This is Egypt itself that's being represented. And then you have the cows. Okay, Well, now the cows are the symbols of the Egyptian deity Isis, okay, who is the the deity of agriculture and and the earth, the land, so to speak, okay, and so the cows really represent sustenance and food and life and that sort of thing, as do of course the heads of grain, okay. So there are these very conspicuous symbols in Pharaoh's dream, right? Anybody could see that. I mean, I'm not an Egyptian. And I can see it. And I can see that this dream has something to do with, with something being really good and prosperous and agriculture doing well and all that sort of thing. And, and you can, you can, that's just conspicuous, is it not, in this dream? I mean, I know we have the advantage of, her, of Joseph's interpretation, but I mean, just at face value. Uh, this is probably why Pharaoh was so disturbed. I mean, to some degree, the meaning of this dream is somewhat conspicuous. Now, the specific seven years, things like that, is a little difficult. But what is striking to me here is that with, even with the Lord implanting in Pharaoh's mind all these symbols that Pharaoh, as an Egyptian ruler, would clearly understand. And that the interpreters, his, his skilled, trained interpreters would understand. Even with all that, they are unable to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Why? God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, and I hadn't thought about that before, but it's very clear that he's watching. Yeah, we are reminded of what 
Moses says in Deuteronomy when he says the secret things belong unto the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us. And we're reminded of what Job says uh, to his uh uh, to his trainers, or, I mean, to his uh, friends in in Job 12, when he says, "God takes away discernment," and we are reminded of what what the writer of Proverbs says when he says, "It is the glory of God to conceal a matter," and we are reminded of what Paul says in Corinthians when he says, "No one knows the thoughts of God." except God himself and those to whom he wishes to reveal. And so as in one sense, as much as we would expect that these these guys who are who have been trained and educated in all the symbology and puns and everything of interpreting dreams, and they actually have the dream books that they can bring out and they can lay out before them in the palace and they can look at them and they can look at Pharaoh's dreams and they can look in their dreams and they are unable to see the meaning. And why is that? Because Joseph says, interpretations of dreams comes from God. And that's really instructive to me uh, on a number of levels to remember that it is God's prerogative to conceal a matter. And it's God's prerogative to reveal. And it's not just true with Egyptian dream interpreters, but it's true with us. And it's true with all men. It's God's prerogative to conceal a thing. And it's God's prerogative to reveal it. And Moses' teaching to the children of Israel there in Deuteronomy 29 is don't worry about things you don't know. Worry about the things you do. Don't fret about the things that God has concealed, but apply yourself to do the things that God has revealed. Deuteronomy 29.29 And... And one of the ways I think this whole thing is illustrated to me in kind of a dramatic way is is how many people there are out there that are skilled and trained in the interpretation of the Bible but don't believe it. I mean, there's all kinds of experts out there on the Bible. And you can you can go to any bookstore and pick books off the shelf and, and read the the musings and the speculations of people who have spent their entire lives in exploring the Bible and have no clue of the real meaning of the gospel that's hidden in its pages. And yet, to simple people like you and I, God in His grace opens up our understanding and we see it and we understand it. We go, oh, it's a God thing. And it's a God thing that's going on here with these interpreters. Now, I ask you this question. Why does, why does God not allow the interpreters to interpret Pharaoh's dream? And? I'm not going to answer so <laughs> Well, I guess... Okay. 
Because he wants Joseph to interpret it. That's all. He wants Joseph to interpret it. Because he wants to elevate Joseph. So, so what we discover about God is that he's got his own reasons for why he reveals things and why he conceals things. And our obligation is to walk by faith. That doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't ask him to reveal things that are hidden to us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask him to explain things to us we don't understand. But it, what it does mean is that in those things that we don't understand, we walk by faith. Because we believe that God in his providence and his wisdom has a reason for the things that he conceals and the things that he reveals. Well, so without an interpreter to interpret, then the cupbearer steps up, right? And he sticks his neck out. That's the meaning of the phrase, I would venture to speak of my offenses. In other words, He's going to take the risk here of reminding Pharaoh that he'd really made him mad at one point. And he describes how Pharaoh was ferocious, ferociously angry at him and had thrown him into prison along with the baker and, and, and Joseph had interpreted their dreams and Joseph had interpreted their two dreams that they both dreamed, but they both dreamed according to the interpretation. You notice that? In other words... The message to be conveyed is what determined what the dream was to be. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't that they just dreamed a dream and then coincidentally you get a meaning out of that, but rather that God had a message he wanted to convey and then he gave to each one of these guys their respective dream. And what, and what Joseph did, as we see in the case of the two officials, is that he looked at two dreams that were similar in some ways and different in some ways and Joseph determined that the most important thing about these dreams was not how they were the same, but how they were different. You see that? Okay. Now, when he deals with Pharaoh's two dreams, or two parts of his one dream, when, when Joseph deals with that, the issue is going to be, the real issue is going to be how the dreams are similar, not how they're different. So it's just the opposite. Which is one which helps disclose to us how the gift that Joseph has is a gift given to him by God, because he is able to distinguish in one pair of dreams that it's the differences that are important, and in the other pair of dreams he distinguishes or judges that it's the similarities that are important. Okay, well. And so, uh, so the cupbearer tells him about this Hebrew youth and how he had interpreted these dreams. And, uh, and, he, and of course, the, the outcome or the result of that. And so the immediate, result, the immediate uh, response of Pharaoh is he sends for Joseph. He calls for him and he's hurriedly brought out of prison. And he chases, chases his head and face and, and changes his clothes and he comes into Pharaoh's presence. Well, uh, I, want to do, I want to deal a little bit more with verse 14, but we're out of time. So we'll, we'll talk about verse 14 some more next week uh, when we pick up the rest of the story and he ends up in Pharaoh's presence. So, okay?